Welcome to the Just and Sustainable Economy podcast. I'm Isaac Graves. Today's conversation features Joel Backen, professor of law, the University of British Columbia, author and filmmaker of The New Corporation, and Rebecca Henderson, the John and Natty MacArthur University professor of Harvard University and author of Reimagining Capitalism, in conversation with ASBN's Jeffrey Hollander on creating an economic system that works for all. Before we dive into today's program, we at the American Sustainable Business Network would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Hanson Bridget. Hanson Bridget has been a proud sponsor of ASBN for over a decade, and it is an industry-recognized California-based law firm with an expansive platform of legal services and broad base of clients emerging, exporting, or conducting business in the region. Hanson Bridget serves a diverse client list, including large national and global companies, including many sustainable businesses, impact investors, and any company looking to structure their investments to generate social and environmental impact alongside a financial return. Learn more at HansonBridget.com, H-A-N-S-O-N-B-R-I-D-G-E-T-T.com, or have ASBN connect you with their sustainable business and impact investing practice group. And now let's begin our discussion. Jeffrey? Thrilled to moderate this conversation with Rebecca and Joel uh, on this incredibly important subject, which we are going to focus on creating an economic system that works for all, moving from incremental to structural change. And let me just make a few introductory comments before we turn over to some questions that I'll pose to Rebecca and Joel. But I think, as everyone knows, this COVID-19 crisis, together with the outrage about racism in America, has revealed what many of us have always known, that our current system of capitalism is just not working for most Americans. And as Steve Perlstein, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, recently wrote, our economic system has run off the moral rails, offending our sense of fairness, eroding our sense of community, poisoning our politics and rewarding values that easily degenerate into greed and indifference. This dysfunction was also recognized in a recent Just Capital Harris poll, where 75% of all Americans believe our current form of capitalism doesn't ensure the greater good of society, and only 29% of Americans believe that it produces the kind of society they want for the next generation. Back in December of 2019, which feels like an awfully long time ago, ASBC launched its work on creating an economic system that works for all at its Washington, D.C. summit, bringing together a multi-stakeholder working group to identify the most important public policy initiatives required to create an economy that works for all. And while capitalism remains a dynamic force, challenges such as income inequality, our crumbling infrastructure, market consolidation, climate change, underinvestment, the financialization of our economy pose serious threats to our continued global leadership, as well as our social stability. Many across the country view our current way of practicing capitalism as a system that's rigged and not working for them. In recent history, corporate management has obsessively focused on maximizing value for themselves and their shareholders. But a growing chorus of financial experts now argue that this narrow focus has come at great cost to employees, customers, suppliers, communities who have an even larger stake in our economy. And if our economy is to work for all, then business leaders have to implement ways to simultaneously address the priorities of all stakeholders. The limited progress that has been made in response to these challenges over the past three to four decades has been insufficient given the scale of the global crisis we face. If we are to succeed in this critical transition, moving from a shareholder to a stakeholder way of managing business, we have to introduce broad public policies that prevent this obsession with shareholder returns to clear and measurable goals that evaluate the treatment of other stakeholders. 
The challenges we face have been designed into our system of governance, by and large, over the last 30 to 40 years. You can't solve climate change without dealing with environmental justice. You can't solve environmental justice without addressing health care for all. You can't solve our health care challenges without addressing the impact of hundreds of millions of dollars that have been spent by the pharmaceutical industry to influence public policy. All of these issues are interrelated and interdependent. So let me highlight just a couple of our critical public policy recommendations before we get to Joel and Rebecca. One is reparations for African-Americans as recommended by Black Lives Matter. Another is mandatory diversity on corporate boards, which includes worker representation. A third idea is the adoption of full cost accounting to make sure that companies are no longer allowed to externalize their costs onto society and the environment. A fourth is a wealth tax as advocated by Thomas Piketty amongst others. The fifth is a progressive consumption tax. The sixth is establishing better corporate governance and fiduciary responsibilities that represents all stakeholders. We also must have equal access to capital, particularly for people of color, women, and underserved population. And we must address the tax system inequities that plague our society. So I could go on, we have no shortage of recommendations, but I'd like to turn the session over to Rebecca to answer our first question, which is if you agree that our economy doesn't work for most people, what do you think the primary causes of this dysfunction are? Jeffrey, thank you very much for your introduction. And my thanks more broadly to um, ASPC for inviting me to be here. I've been a great admirer of the association for many years. And actually, Jeffrey, you should know of you in particular. Um, but it's an amazing group of CEOs and businesses who are trying hard in so many ways to shift our system. So do I agree that our economic system doesn't work for most people? I surely do. Why? I think there are, there are a ton of reasons, but let me start with two. The first is that we have built a society in which too many people believe that all they need to do is focus on me and now. And we have lost sight of focusing on us and later. Now, any parent of a two-year-old knows that the big task in raising human beings is to persuade them that a unique focus on yourself and right now is a very unskillful way to live. So I think we have a sort of massive cultural social framing, which is a problem. But concretely, what has gone wrong? We have let our society get massively out of balance. There's tons of research to suggest that the way to build a prosperous, just, sustainable society is on the back of three institutions, three foundations, a free market. I'm a huge fan of the free market. I think it's an unparalleled source of innovation and prosperity. But free markets need to be balanced by free government by democratically accountable, transparent, capable government working for the people that can hold markets in balance and do things like the amazing list of policies you have in creating an economic system that works for all, which is fabulous, by the way. Um, things like making sure you can't throw uh, greenhouse gases out the window for free, making sure that you can't drive wages to the bottom and create jobs that are not only pay, don't pay living wages, but have random schedules and no health benefits and, you know, th this horrible workplace that we've created. So we need the free market to be balanced by, by good government. And last but not least, we need a strong civil society to hold both government and market in balance. That means an independent, truthful press. That means an independent judiciary and a strong voice for employees, perhaps unions, perhaps works councils, but some way in which the working people can have a seat at the table with everybody else. 
And it's, it's that balance that we need and it's that balance we've lost. Why did we lose it? Long story, let me summarize it in a sentence. Because we let ourselves believe that maximizing shareholder value and letting the markets rip would solve all our problems. It was never a good idea. But after 50 years of watching the effects, we are absolutely sure it's not a good idea. There has been a systematic campaign to run down government and the institutions of government. We have lost the original inclusive institutions, which I think drove the American economy in the 50s and 60s. And that's what we need to rebuild. Thank you, Rebecca. Uh, Joe, I'd love your thoughts on the same question and perhaps any reflections you have on Rebecca's answer. Yeah, thank you uh, again uh, to the ASBC, uh, to yourself, uh, to Rebecca. I, I really appreciate it. Um, there's really nothing that Rebecca has said uh, that I disagree with except for one thing, and that is calling a free market free. And I disagree with it for two reasons. One is that it's not true. Markets are created by the state. They're created by laws. They require uh, enforcement by the judiciary, by government, by the police. Uh, if I walk onto the property of DuPont Inc. and uh, say that I want to take away some of their intellectual property, they call the state. They enforce their property rights created by the state. Uh, their contract rights are created by the state and are enforced by the state. And most importantly, they can't exist as a corporation, but for the fact that the state uh, legally creates the corporate form, enforces it, provides limited liability and all those other things. So to call a market free, I think is, is intellectually wrong. Um, but I do agree that a, a good society requires markets. It's just calling them free that I have a problem with. And the second reason I have a problem with calling them free is because I think it serves the ideological purpose of causing many of the problems that Rebecca has highlighted, of creating the sort of me now society, of letting markets rip as she describes it. Because once we've identified it as free, as presumptively free, then every time we impose a restriction on it, that's seen as denying freedom. And I think that's actually where the problem starts. When we look over the last 40 years, that word free has been at the core of the ideological assault on the institutions that Rebecca is talking about as important, uh, on the social state, on the regulatory state, on the state's capacity to create that kind of balance that she's talking about. And that, that is, in effect, what I, what I look at in the book is, is how that idea of, of freedom and how corporations positioning as good citizens combine to basically lead to uh, an ideological inevitability uh, of creating a me now kind of society and creating a society uh, where, uh, where markets are allowed to rip. Rebecca, I'm sure you have a thought about that. Many. <laughs> First, <laughs> Wow, that is so cool. Um, Joel, I, uh, I spend a lot of time talking about the fact that markets are not genuinely free and fair unless there's a government enforcing the rules and everybody has access and prices reflect real costs. But you've gone right for the jugular, which is why do we call it a free market? And has that sort of contributed to the ideological framing? I, of course, am going to go a materialist on you and say, yes, the language is important, but oh my goodness, there were strong material interests for pushing markets Absolutely. at any price. Yes. And indeed, one of the reasons we, anyway, I, I could go on, but fascinating. Well, let's shift to a question about to correct the challenges we're facing, because I think you both agree that we're facing substantial challenges to make the economy work for all. What types of public policies are required and most important to create a more just and equitable economic system? Joel, I'll let you go first this time. Sure. I mean, you know, we can all come up with our with our wish list. And my guess is our wish list will be 
very similar. Uh, public policies that create the kind of worker empowerment and participation that Rebecca is talking about, uh, public policies that um, internalize the costs of, of uh, corporate profit making. Um, you know, the, the list of things, Jeffrey, that, that you put out, the, the goals of creating a strong civil society, a uh, strong democracy. Um, so rather than um, sort of coming up with my own laundry list, which is going to be roughly the same as yours, I think we all probably agree on what we need to move forward. Um, I, I think what, what we really need to do, and again, it, it is at the ideological level driven by, by material interests. Um, what I found in my book is in the research for it and in the film is that a lot of the things that people are celebrating at the moment, and I'll take the, uh, the, the, the business roundtable's recent pronouncement that they are in favor of stakeholder capitalism. A lot of people say, including the panel before that, you know, it's just a matter of getting them to walk the walk of the talk that they're talking, that, you know, they're talking a good thing, let's get them to do it. What I found in my in the research for my book and film is something quite different. What I found is that there's a symbiosis between the talk that corporations can now serve the wider interests of society and the uh, 40-year assault on the idea that the democratic state should have a role in creating a balance uh, between uh, shareholder value on the one hand and public good on the other. And the moment that I think captured it for me, I was in Davos uh, at the World Economic Forum filming, and I caught Richard Edelman, who's sort of the guru of all gurus in, in the business world, um, and sort of did an interview on the fly with him. And he said something that really stuck with me, and it's in both the book and the film. Um, he said, you know, corporations are great. They're becoming good actors now. Um, and I'm not much of a believer in political citizenship, he said to me. I believe in the power of the marketplace. And at that moment, the penny really dropped for me that this whole idea of corporate social responsibility, while it seems like a good thing, and in my first film, I talked about Ray Anderson and how it's a wonderful thing and interface and all of that. But it occurred to me that there's this, this problematic um, equation that the people, many of the people, and I found this in Davos, many of the people who are pushing for stakeholder capitalism in the world of big business, big publicly traded companies, are also suggesting that because we're good now, because we can be concerned about the public good, we don't need government anymore. We can self-regulate. We should privatize more. We don't need to pay taxes because we don't need social services because we can do it. We big publicly traded corporations can deliver the public good, the social good that governments have in the past. And so, so what I realized and the ultimate theme of this new book and film of mine is that this whole movement in the big business world, not in the small business world, and we can talk about that, but in the big business world is actually a play to further the tendencies that we've seen over the last 40 years, but now with a smiling face. So I think the first thing we need to do is dislodge from our imaginations that notion that corporations can govern themselves and the world and pick up on what Rebecca was talking about, that we do, in fact, uh, need strong democratic regulation, democratic governments uh, to help create the balances we need in society. All right. Love, Rebecca, your thoughts on Joel's perspective, as well as you know, if, if there are some particular public policies that you think are most important to be focused on that should inform the work of organizations like ASBC now that we have a new administration. Love to get your thoughts on what they should be. Sure. So um, I really disagree with Joel on this. Let's, I believe that this movement among large firms, although of course it can be cover for doing nothing, and of course it can be used as, oh, we don't need government, that has not been my experience at all of firms actually at the forefront of this movement. 
that in fact, firms who are trying to do the right thing very quickly discover they can't do it on their own and need to make common cause with other firms in their industry. And oh, that doesn't work either. And need to move to government and they need to push finance to enforce that everybody does the right thing. I mean, my book, I don't have a movie joke. May I say how cool it is that you can say, well, in my book and my movie, um, in, in my book, my book is a story of how these purpose-driven firms might be an important ally in driving for exactly the kind of institutional reconstruction that both Joel and I hope to see. That in finding an important, that book, oh, make me happy, Jeffrey. Thank you. <laughs> that... Um, that if we can, I mean, the phrase I sometimes use is split the elite. If we can support a group of powerful businesses saying, let's give a concrete example. I am doing everything I can to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I think it's the right thing to do. I have a business case. I can take them down about 40% and then there's no business case. But I promised my consumers, I promised my employees that I would do the right thing. So, okay, let's form a collaboration with other people in the industry. Let's try and stop deforestation in our supply chains. Let's work together to try and make that happen. Lots of progress, lots of measurement. They try, they try. It's super tough. Whoa, not going to work. Let's ask the banks and the big investors to insist that everyone address the problem of climate change. And, you know, I think Larry Fink's letter is a lot more than simply propaganda. Um, I had the great pleasure of sitting on the board of a large publicly traded company. And we are seeing the proxy advisory firms come in with guidance saying, if you don't tell us about your transition to renewable energy, and if you don't have goals and you don't have metrics, we're going to vote against your board. So real action, real pressure on the firms. And then I have been in meeting after meeting where the business people have looked at each other and said, well, this isn't working. We need government. We need regulation. This is most evident as so many firms struggle to deal with the issue of diversity and inclusion. And more and more CEOs are saying, well, you know, I, I can't fix this problem. We need decent education and decent healthcare and a transportation network that makes this city more inclusive. And let me work with other firms in the city to make that happen. Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that every business person is an angel or everyone who says the right thing is pure as the driven snow. No, 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 no. But are there a core of business leaders? And here I am talking to the ASBC. I bet like several of them are on the call who believe that moving in this direction is important for driving disclosure, for driving um, local policy, and ultimately for putting pressure on governments to rebuild our institutions. That's the name of the game. I want as a large section of the business, uh, business sector on board as we try and rebuild those institutions, standing up and saying, you know, uh, real competition needs real democracy, needs real, real politics. Uh, Jeffrey, to answer your question on policy, oh, please, some kind of carbon regulation. Climate change is an existential threat, um, but it's in your list. Um, I'm with Joel. I, I read your list of policy recommendations and they're excellent. <laughs> um, I think the other thing that would help the agenda I just laid out is mandatory disclosure of environmental and social impacts. We need to know what effect these firms are having on the world around, around them. My friend George Seraphim has recently come out with a study suggesting that as many of a third of all the companies in his initial sample of 1,800 firms, for as many as a third of them, the environmental damage they cause is greater than their total profits. That's really important information that must be out there in the public domain for customers and investors and regulators and employees. Uh, so that would be where I would start. But there's, there's a long list of amazing policies we need. The question is not what is the list. The question is how we begin to get there. Like what is the process by which we get from here to there? And I believe that business could help, that purpose-driven business could help us get from here to there. So let me just ask a follow-up question quickly, because I'm a huge fan of George 
George's work, and I know he, he is with you at the Harvard uh, University. How do you think these businesses, just let's take an example of ExxonMobil, will react to the idea of disclosing that their negative externality on the environment through CO2 emissions is $100 billion a year that might wipe out, if not completely, at least partially, their profits? When I use the term split the elites, I'm politely saying we need to isolate the fossil fuel companies. They are trouble. And it, they, for too long, they've hidden behind shareholder value maximization. We're just maximizing shareholders. We fund climate denialism. We flood the political system with money. We're just maximizing shareholder value. Bad idea. I think it's really important for a very significant fraction of other business people and many investors to insist that they disclose what they're doing, to insist that they adopt a plan for transitioning to a carbon-free economy. I, I doubt they're going to do it voluntarily, but they are being pushed. Uh, we teach a case on Exxon, uh, George and I at Harvard in the Reimagining Capitalism course we teach. And about halfway through the case, some of the students say, oh, Exxon is Kodak. And by that they mean a great company that made an enormous amount of money that could not see the world was changing. And that's the issue with the fossil fuel companies. We've got to push them into the change. Great. So, Joel, to bring about these changes, and I think there's pretty good alignment about the changes we need to bring about, how do we get that done? What kinds of challenges are we going to face and how can this community that supports most of these public policy initiatives, how can they help make that happen? Well, there are obviously many things that need to be done, but I think one of the first things is uh, to just to get back to how we think about these issues is to give up on um, the illusion uh, that uh, big business is, in fact, an ally in this struggle. And so, so to that end, because I think it's all about where we decide to fight, what we decide to do. And if I were to split the elite, it would probably be between publicly traded companies and those that are not publicly traded, like most of them that are part of this organization. Because publicly traded companies, and I say this as a lawyer, um, have fiduciary obligations. That is uh, under corporate law. Law, they have obligations to advance shareholder value and to promote shareholder value at whatever cost. So for me, it's not about how nice the people are who are running these firms or how committed they are as people. Um, I sat down with uh, Lord John Brown, the former head of British Petroleum, and interviewed him for my film and for my book. And he was the nicest guy. And I had no doubt at all that he was sincere in telling me that safety was his high highest priority while he was head of BP. The facts, however, show that his company uh, routinely, and even in my first book in 2003, I featured BP uh, for their inattention to process safety. So while they were very, very attentive to personal safety of workers, make sure they didn't slip and fall and hurt themselves, they were industry leaders, they were very unattentive to process safety, and that is ultimately what led to the Deepwater Horizon disaster. But at the same time, when sitting across from him, I had no doubt that Lord John Brown cared as a person about safety. But in his position as a CEO of a major company trying to grow and trying to profit and trying to position itself as one of the leading companies in the world, which it did under his uh, leadership, his consideration of safety always has to happen within that envelope. And so, so even while personally, and even he was quite emotional about it, he is all about prioritizing safety. 
his conception of safety, his conception of what that meant was tailored to fit within the frame of what he was supposed to be doing as his primary obligation in his job. And I would say that's the same for Paul Pullman when it comes to palm oil. It's the same for Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan. These are leaders who are unquestionably personally committed to what they're saying. They're not insincere. They are not hypocritical. It's actually more dangerous than that. They resolve the cognitive dissonance of their positions between having a primary obligation, a legal obligation to create shareholder value on the one hand and a personal obligation to do good in the world on the other. They resolve it in favor of the former. So their very conception of doing good is limited. So when you talk to John Brown about what do we need to do about climate change, He'll say, and he says in the film and book, we can't go straight to renewables. We need that. That's a long, long way off. So what we need to do is go to natural gas. Now, I think he truly believes that. But there are many other people who aren't heads of corporations who are saying, actually, we can go to renewables in 10 years. And not only can we, but we must. But that is not going to be the view that uh, even a, an enlightened leader of a large company is going to, to proffer. So my first point is that the very conception of doing good is determined by the material circumstances that you're in uh, as a CEO, and it's going to tailor that. And I give chapter and verse of examples of that in the book and film. The second point is that while people like Jamie Dimon and Paul Pullman and all of these folks are talking a good line, and while their companies are doing good things, 100% recycling, renewables, all of that, they are also lobbying like crazy for more deregulation, for more privatization, for more tax cuts. They're members of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce that's trying to uh, avoid, um, you know, putting restrictions or putting requirements on companies to manufacture PPP. They're uh, going in after 2017, after Trump's 2017 tax cuts. They're going in and asking for more tax cuts, and they're getting them. Uh, Jamie Dimon and his business roundtable, while talking about stakeholder capitalism, are lobbying like crazy for a whole laundry list of deregulations. So it, it's, it's, it's a bizarre scenario to say these are the folks that we should rely upon as our allies. They talk a good talk, but they're trying to push back any kind of legal, regulatory, or state requirements on them to do good things. They're pushing a line that is about voluntary and private um, consideration of what should be done and what is good. And they're trying, Jamie Dimon and his bank profit greatly from privatization. They finance many privatization of water projects, of social security projects. They're not stopping that. But at the same time, they're saying, we're the good guys now and we're going to save Detroit. Even while at the same time, they were, uh, you know, helping bring about the 2008 crisis that devastated Detroit. So there's just too much pushing and pulling going on. And I think it has to be understood against a backdrop of not whether these people are nice people, but what are the structural and legal constraints in which they're working as leaders of publicly traded corporations? So if we're going to split the elite, for me, the proper split is they're on one side and you folks, most of whom are not running publicly traded corporations, you folks actually have the leeway and the latitude to decide how much you're going to sacrifice in terms of money making for social good. You can make that decision free of fiduciary constraints to shareholders if you're in a non-publicly traded company. And I urge you to do that. And I urge you to see yourself on the side of all those civil society organizations of trade unions and workers groups and all the others trying to create a better society. Your job 
is to do that through business. And business is essential. It's, it's crucial to creating a good society. And having a thriving private sector is crucial to creating a good society. But you are in a very, very different position. In fact, you're victims of much of what is going on uh, among those publicly traded companies. Uh, earlier speaker talked about Amazon putting small businesses out of business. And you can go on and on uh, through a whole host of different things. So for me, that's where we should be thinking about the difference. So my, my, my sense is, Rebecca, you would take a more nuanced approach and not dump all public companies into the same basket. And I must say, being now as Unilever has purchased Seventh Generation and being part of Unilever, I see this a little bit more nuanced, but I'd love your thoughts, Rebecca. And then after that, we're going to turn to some of the many questions that have been posed uh, to you in the Q&A. Two thoughts. The first is, I'm not exactly sure what Joel is arguing for. I completely agree that the change effort has to come through rebuilding public policy and putting heavy constraints on firms so that they are forced to do the right thing. Completely agree that's the end state we're going for. Completely agree that it's not about niceness and that publicly traded firms are under strong, uh, strong pressures to maximize profits. Completely agree. But here's where I'm puzzled. Is Joel suggesting that firms like Unilever are a bad thing? That a firm like Enel, that at one stage was building a, a renewable plant a week, a renewable energy plant a week, like we shouldn't encourage that? That BP's recent announcement that they are going to get super serious about renewables, which sent their stock down by 20%, where the CEO said, no, we have to make this transition. It's the right thing to do. I'm going to do it. But that's a bad thing. That Elon Musk's investment in electric vehicles, which has arguably accelerated the introduction of electric vehicles by at least five years, is, not, is something we should actively discourage. Now, I'm completely with Joel that we shouldn't rely on it. I don't want to sit around and wait for the titans of industry to save us. I completely agree with him. And I'm also in complete agreement that we've got to get public spending transparent and out there and repeal Citizens United if we possibly can. Totally there, totally there. My question is, what's wrong with giving the speech he just gave to you know, small privately held firms to publicly traded firms? that there is a business case for doing the right thing, that problems like climate change and inequality are going to kill our society if we don't fix them, that you have no legal duty to maximize shareholder value, you have space, that investors are beginning to pour money into this area. Use your expertise to begin to accelerate the transformation. And I believe as they start to do that, that they start to ask for public policy that will support doing the same thing. So it's not like relying on them like, hey, we can just hang out and, and do nothing. But I would much rather have some of those companies moving in this direction than none at all. I would really much rather change the rhetoric and really open the idea that companies need to be responsive and to focus on the public good than not to raise the issue. But you know, Joel makes a ton of great points. I mean, it's hard to be in the box that is a public company box. That's why we need to change the parameters of corporate governance, for example. If, if I could respond very briefly. Yes, sir. Go I, ahead. I, I think probably the, the source of our difference is that, uh, and I, this is a friendly difference, that Rebecca believes that if companies start to go down the road of good, that they will start for to ask for public policy that demand they go down the road of good. I believe on the basis of my research of what I've seen, and this is the case I make in my book and film with a lot of examples, is that it's actually the opposite. That as they start to say, we are committed to public good, the next step down the road is, therefore, we don't need government. That's what I see happening. And that's what I see in the behavior that as they're going down the road for public good, their actions are actually to try to push back 
public policy that imposes mandatory requirements on them. So that's what I see. So I, I think the fun would be to sit down with both books because, of course, I have 15 years of research and have talked to tons of people and have lots of case examples. Right. So do I. And it's a really interesting question as to whether we're both perhaps at the margins some, uh, subject to sample selection bias. So it'd be really interesting to sort of compare and contrast, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, let, me, let me dive in. As, as much as I'd love to, <laughs> to let this go on, I'd love to touch upon some of the questions that are uh, – members and audience have asked. And I want to just turn first to Mac McCabe, an old friend of mine, who, to summarize his question, uh, he basically notes, and I think this is a question for you, Rebecca, that back in the 80s, uh, Walmart was the sort of evil empire. And in many respects, they have done a lot of work to both improve their sustainable and social profile. But uh, have have now become and and are considered a much more positive influence in the corporate landscape than they used to be. Do they deserve that uh, that that better reputation that they have now garnered? Rebecca, are you there? I would move on to the next question until we get the connection reestablished. Okay. So the next question. Go ahead, Rebecca. No, the connection is. We're having trouble with your connection. I'm so sorry. Yes. Can you hear me now? Yes, that's much better. Yes, much better. Let me answer. Um, the first time I came back from visiting Walmart, I had dinner with my son and I was raving about the fact that I thought Walmart was one of the leading edge examples of what I've been talking about. In fact, to Joel's point, it's one of the central examples in my book, Walmart's attempt to raise wages and increase living conditions among their workforce has led the CEO to advocate for minimum wage legislation, for better democracy, um, for educa increased education in the, in the states where Walmart is present. So for me, it's, it's definitely an example. Mac raised, my son looked at me and said, Rebecca, I will believe you because you're my mum, but <laughs> no one else is going to. <laughs> and uh, it's sure a hard sled. It is indeed the case that Walmart was like a disaster for a long time. The way I think about it is Walmart was the paragon of 20th century capitalism that said strip mine the planet, force down the wages, treat people like things. That's how they got to be so rich and so successful and innovate like crazy. But because they were so large, they reached the limits of that paradigm very early. And so back in 2005, it was clear they couldn't go on behaving like this. And the, when Hurricane Katrina hit, the CEO at the time used it as an occasion to completely remake or begin to remake the model of the corporation. So Walmart now is hugely active in, in uh, supply chains and reducing greenhouse gases. And, uh, and it makes a big difference. So yes, I do think Walmart is an interesting example. Are they perfect? Absolutely not. Are there issues? Yes. Is it better than it was? Very much so. Thank you. So here's a question for both of you and I'll ask Joel to go first. Uh, could, this is from Calvin, could salary or profit caps be established in order to redistribute financial profits to the labor that created it. And I must say at both uh, Seventh Generation and at Sustain, we did have salary caps. The most senior, highest paid person could not earn more than 10 times the lowest paid person. But I'd love both of your thoughts on that concept. Joel? 
Yeah, I mean, there's no question the the statistics are something like from the 1950s, the uh, CEOs made 20 times more uh, than workers on the shop floor. Uh, now that number is uh, often around a thousand and often even more than a thousand, I think averages around three or 400. So there's been a huge, huge uh, change in that respect. Um, you know, personally, I think the best way to impose salary caps is through a taxation system. Uh, the problem again, you know, and I'll sound like a broken record here, but relying on sort of voluntary types of um, good actions by good actors uh, is not a way to foment public policy. Uh, the best way to do it is through a tax system that basically uh, ensures that uh, CEOs, if they get you know, over a certain amount, uh, as used to be the case, they, uh, people who get a certain amount of money will be clawed back almost 90% up to 90%, uh, and the same with companies. So I think a uh, one of the things we wanna be looking for with the new administration uh, is some attention to how we can uh, create better policy through uh, through the tax system. And so that it doesn't just become a question of redistributing funds and revenues within a company, but it becomes a question of redistribution much more broadly uh, across society as a whole, which is what a tax system uh, is designed to do. Rebecca? I completely agree with Joel on the need to reform the tax system in exactly the way he describes. I think that would be much more effective than a salary cap for many reasons, uh, both economically and from a, a justice and equality perspective. Uh, the idea of salary multiples is super interesting, though. Um, I came across this at Mondragon, which I'm sure many people on the call are much more deeply familiar with than I am. But my understanding is that the CEO of Mondragon's salary is limited to some multiple of the lowest person. I think it might be 28 or 29 times. And I love the incentive that gave. And maybe, Jeffrey, this is why you did it at Seventh Generation, because what is his or her incentive? It's to raise the wages of that person at the bottom. <laughs> Yeah. if they're going to raise their own pay. So I love that as a device. Whether it would make sense to legislate it, I haven't thought about. But we need some way to reconnect um, the, the, the uh, well, some way to redistribute all that wealth. <laughs> that's, uh, that's clearly key. So I'm facing a terrible quandary here. There's dozens and dozens of questions for both of you. That we won't have time to get to all of them. Uh, so uh, let, me, let me ask uh, each of you for some sort of concluding thoughts. Uh, either what should this community do to most effectively further the transformation that we've been discussing? Uh, we would love your thoughts on, on how we could most effectively contribute to this transformation. Joe? Oh, sure. Um, well, I, I mean, again, I think, I think consciousness is a very important piece in all of this and the sort of stories we tell ourselves and uh, who we see our, our friends and, and allies as. And I think my message um, to, big, to small business and to non-publicly traded business is, is always you are... Uh, like individuals in a way, much more than uh, large publicly traded companies are, in the sense that the people who run a small non-publicly traded business can make decisions about how much harm they want to do in the world, how much good they want to do in the world, how they want to balance uh, uh, profit making versus social values, uh, how they want to redistribute resources within the company, um, whether they want to try to avoid taxes or pay them or, or lobby for deregulation or not. I mean, these are all moral choices that you can make, ethical choices that you can make. Um, you know, as, as a lawyer, I'm, I'm very sensitive to the restraints that the corporate form impose upon directors and managers of companies. So a company like Walmart can do all kinds of good things, but it can't abandon its business model 
of uh, generating profit for its shareholders. And I think it's interesting that that business model of big box stores arguably is problematic. And even while Walmart was doing all kinds of great things in the world and making itself better, it expanded the number of big box stores in the world by three times. So, so that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. It's not that I think big business shouldn't be doing uh, good things, shouldn't try to do good things in its own right. I'm more interested in the larger picture and the way that that pivot to goodness is being used to push a, uh, an anti-regulation and a privatization and an anti-tax agenda. That's my concern. In and of itself, good things aren't bad. Small companies, non-publicly traded companies can pursue good in its own right. And so I would urge that your members see themselves more as part of civil society than as part of the, quote, business community. Yes, you're in business, but you're in business in the way that a doctor or a dentist or a lawyer is in business. It's more like a profession. You have one foot in the need to make a living, but you have another foot in a public calling. And that's how I would see oneself as a smaller business person. And in that way, I would see myself as quite different than and even in opposition to, in many ways, uh, these BMS that are large publicly traded companies. Rebecca? Well, I would love the large companies to have heard that speech. I think they should think of themselves as as professionals, as having an important responsibility for the public welfare. Um, and for that to include changing the tax regime and improving our, our governance structures. But let me answer your question, Jeffrey. Um, I have two thoughts. One is my scholarly research is around high-performance work systems. That is the difference it makes to treat your workforce with dignity and respect, to have a purpose which is beyond profit-making, which is to empower the people that work for you so that they can make their own decisions and have a sense of agency and mission in their own lives. I think there's a lot of research suggesting that that's a better way to run an organization. I think the success of Seventh Generation might be an example of, of that. Um, and I think that you, in smaller businesses, that's often easier to do. I think it's really important in the world that I, I think small business is, is still business and showing that business can be run this way and can make a profit and can make a difference could be both culturally and politically enormously powerful. To pick up on a theme from the previous panel, it's really important that there be business associations that champion these kinds of ideas in Washington and elsewhere in the world. Uh, the Chamber of Commerce has an enormous following of very small businesses. Uh, is there a way to um, move the Chamber away from some of its more reactionary policies towards these much more inclusive, just kinds of ways of running the economy? So I think there's a political and cultural role for firms uh, who think of themselves as progressive, um, who've experienced that it's possible to do business this way, um, as well as just setting an example of, of what it can mean to, to be a purpose-driven business. Thank you so much, Joel. Thank you so much, Rebecca. If you've enjoyed this conversation, read these books. They are both wonderful, two of the best books I've read all year. And this is a way to continue this dialogue and to, de to, to, to really jump more deeply into the thinking that Joel and Rebecca have shared with you today. That was authors Joel Backen and Rebecca Henderson in conversation with Jeffrey Hollander. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. And a special thank you to our guests for participating in today's episode of the Just and Sustainable Economy podcast. And of course, thank you to our partner and sponsor, Hanson Bridget. Learn more at HansonBridget.com. And don't forget, don't forget to subscribe to the Just and Sustainable Economy podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review. ASBN's vision is a sustainable economy that is stakeholder-driven, regenerative, just, and prosperous. Visit us at asbnetwork.org and consider joining the movement. I'm Isaac Graves. Thanks for listening.